0: We are tribal creatures who are constantly at each other's throats. And when we look ahead to the future, we see more of the same. And some of us say, enough. In a time of polarization, when there's a lot of hatred, you can pretty much guarantee that each side has a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. So whenever you're in any dispute, you look for where the other side has something that they're right about or where your side has been wrong. And then you start by saying that, and it has a magical effect on people, even if I think you're wrong on every point, to at least acknowledge that I think you're sincere in your motives, even that's a concession. So a, a a nice thing happened when Twitter doubled its size from whatever, 120 to 240 characters. I discovered that it's actually possible in 240 characters to say sometimes, I agree with you on X, but on Y, I think it's this. And that has an amazing effect on people. It sort of cuts off the flame wars. So that's the word for 2019.
1: Nuance. That is author, speaker, and NYU professor Jonathan Haidt. And this is episode two hundred and eighty-two of the Oshiginsburg Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg. This, this is 282, episode 282 of the show. We've done that many. This is fantastic. That is my dog, Frank, who's barking at something that I can't see. Frankie, please just stop. Occasionally, he'll just see something because he's a dog. He's a quadruped and he looks at the outlines of things and sometimes he goes, that's a threat. It's a pot plant, but I don't want to tell him because it'll hurt his feelings. Anyway, this is episode 282 of the show with Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist who is a tenured professor at NYU, New York University. You can find him on Twitter at J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T. He's fascinating to follow on Twitter. He's also touring Australia for a series of public talks in July. You can get more information about that, T h i n k i n c. More about Jonathan in just a moment. If you're new to this podcast, thank you for being here. Welcome. Uh, What is this show? Well, for a start, I'm Osher. I work on television. Sometimes I count roses on television. Sometimes I write books and sometimes I ride my bicycle. Uh, This podcast, what is it? It's a conversation that you get to be a part of and a conversation that is designed, deliberately designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you will hear in the next hour or so. Guaranteed to make you go, oh, right. Didn't think about it that way. And then your day's better for it. That's pretty much, pretty much all it is. I want to say thanks to everyone that got in touch through the week. Uh, thank you very much to everybody that left a review on iTunes. That really, really helps us on the show because, in combination with the downloads and the engagement that you do for the show, it really helps other people find out about the show because it pops us up uh, further in the the charty bit. So I, if you do want to uh, leave me a note about the show, I would encourage you highly just go into the iTunes store and um, leave a review for the show and I'll, I'll read it out here. I want to say thanks to Louisa who left us a beautiful review. I do love great juicy conversations and Osha delivers. I'm a long-time listener. I've learned so much about me and together with my psychologist, walking the beach and meds, Osher and his incredible guests are key to my good mental health. Thank you sincerely, Osha. Thank you, Louisa. A lovely one too from Toby, great and thorough. I enjoy listening to your podcast for I really do get something out of every episode. It's nice to listen to your intros and weekly check-ins. I appreciate your communication and responses to your audience, and it gives everyone a chance to see different viewpoints. Thank you so much. And uh, one more from Diana. This podcast is good for your soul and your brain. Thank you, Washer, for bringing such an enriching podcast each and every week. Well, thank you so much um, for leaving that. That really, really, really helps the show. It helps more people discover the show. And the more people that discover the show, the more people download the show, the more download numbers I get to go look to the big book publishers and record companies and go, see how many people listen? It's worth your while to give me a whole hour on a press tour because that's basically what I'm fighting for um, because, in an hour, they can fit in four separate phone interviews uh, on four different outlets. But if I'm able to show that I've got enough numbers, we can get those big juicy guests. And we've got a big juicy guest today, which I'm super, super excited about. Jonathan Hayes, fantastic. I also want to thank everyone that got in touch with the Podsy through the week. That's a photo that you take on your phone of what you're looking at right now. Now, at this very, very moment. So just send it through to email at gmail.com. I'm trying to de-Google my life. As you know, I'm off Instagram. Um, but, yeah, we've got some great pictures coming in this week. Again, from Cardiff in Wales, beautiful. The the, the spring is starting to sprung in, in Wales uh, to the Pilbara, the inland seas of Japan, we were listening to, uh, someone was listening to us this week in the inland seas of Japan. Yeah, that's, you're listening in some magnificent parts of the world. I do love to see it. So just shoot me a photo uh, on your phone and send it in. Send us your email at gmail.com. I, as I said, I told you on Friday... I'm off Instagram, the addict that I am could not stop getting into it. My already corruptible habit formation abilities in my mind, absolutely no match to the superpower AI of attention manipulation. Um, I just pulled it right off my phone. So I'm still checking it on a laptop uh, once a day. Uh, I'm still seeing everything you write and comment. I just don't do it every 48 seconds and in the middle of an important conversation with my wife or my kid, missing my life go by because I'm refreshing a fucking app. So I'm not doing that right now. I'm working on getting someone to help me manage things on that front, but we'll see how we go.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too.
1: So let me tell you about my guest today. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at NYU Stern. He is the author of The Righteous Mind and his latest book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is out right now. We are a few weeks out from an election here in Australia, so I couldn't think of a better time to get someone on the show to help us explore how our thinking is being swayed from outside influences, why we are getting just so super sensitive about things that we never used to be sensitive about, and indeed what we stand to lose by protecting ourselves from and avoiding things that make us uncomfortable, uncomfortable to look at, uncomfortable to read, uncomfortable to consider. We talk about what's wrong with trigger warnings and how we as a society have been slowly getting more and more polarized and the danger that comes from that. I do hope this conversation at least helps in some way with your decision, your choice, this election. I hope it helps you make a choice that isn't influenced by things that you've read on Facebook that are written to fire you up, but really don't reflect reality or indeed the nuance, the greater nuance of the argument at hand. I do hope this conversation encourages you to explore just that. The nuance of the issue at hand, not the knee-jerk emotional response that we seem to have been drawn into more and more in this Facebook like button, share it, this makes me angry, you should be angry too, world, of calling out perpetrators to our team and finding offence to something as small as a lowercase proper noun, which I have been called out for. Yes, I have. Jonathan Haidt is a fascinating human being. I highly recommend you track down his books, which you can find out more about, at righteousmind.com and thecoddling.com, T-H-E-C-O-D-D-L-I-N-G. If you like what you hear, Please do let him know on Twitter, at J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T. He is touring Australia in July for a series of public talks, which will be fantastic. Um, you can get your tickets at thinkinc.org, T-H-I-N-C dot And that's about it. I hope you enjoy this conversation over Skype from Greenwich Village in New York with Jonathan Haidt. I'm so grateful that you and, I can, you and I can speak today. We're speaking from uh, what I can imagine is either your office or, or in, in New York. No, I'm home. Yep, this is my apartment in New York. Ah, fantastic. What, what part of the city uh, do you call home? I live in Greenwich
0: Village. I have NYU housing, so NYU owns this beautiful apartment. Uh, and my office is right out there. Well, I can see it. You can't. But uh, right across the park
1: is the Stern School of Business. Oh, that is magnificent. A friend of mine that I went to business school with works at NYU, Ayana Johnson, she's a, uh, she's a biologist, a marine biologist. She, extraordinary campus and, you know, obviously the epicenter of so much thinking that led the world into new ways of maybe thinking about the world. But in recent years, obviously, as you, you've described, you know, college campuses yeah. certainly in your part of America um, taking big steps, sometimes backwards, sometimes sideways. When it comes to challenges, strange times in higher ed,
0: and uh, let's try to figure out if they're coming your way, or if if Australia will somehow be immune from the contagion.
1: Well, I I don't know because you are you are touring Australia. Um, Actually, you're you're getting Mm -hmm. on a plane in in a couple of hours to come out here. You're doing a couple of gigs around the country, um, which I'll 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 let people know about at at the start of the show. But we are. I lived in America for about ten years, Jonathan. Um, I lived in Los Angeles and. I definitely noted some parallels between the way my country, Australia, thinks and the way that that America thinks. And certainly one thing that we do have in common is this outrage, this almost waiting on the starting line for anything to be offended by. And then once I have the flag, I am offended, kind of anything goes. And I'm wondering, I don't remember that being the case maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But it seems to be certainly the, the, the thing now and working in the public eye, we are always very aware of this is how people are, you know, we've got to be ready <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when this when this goes out on telly because this is how people may, may react. You've done a lot of work as to when this kind of thing all all really started. Um, have mm-hmm. you managed to put a finger on it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, I think we can. So I love to speak in metaphors and, and analogies. And Uh, You know, one way to think about it is like this, like suppose there was like a book sitting on your desk and it's been there for years and one day it bursts into flames and you might be kind of surprised by this and there's no obvious reason why it burst into flames, Um, but then you notice that there's a bunch of crystals dangling in in the window of your of your study and your your daughter has been hanging these crystals there you know one at a time over the last few weeks and it just so happens that at a certain time sunlight was coming through 12 of them and they all happened to hit one spot at the same time and raise the temperature to whatever fahrenheit 450 whatever ray bradbury says it it is Um, And so there's a bunch of separate causes that all came together. Um, One of the most important is certainly social media. Without social media, almost all the bad stuff happening in our world today would either not be happening or would be happening a lot less. And so the outrage culture, the, um, um, the ability of extremes to gain enormous influence over large numbers of people, none of this would have been possible without social media. So that's one of the biggest. But there are a lot of other things. Uh, in the United States in particular, we've had rising political polarization since the 90s, intensifying in the 2000s. Uh, and so uh, at the same time, the faculty on campus have gone from leaning left to being almost entirely on the left. We've we've lost almost all of our political diversity, at, at least in America's top schools in most of the core subjects. So if you have an increasingly left-leaning campus at a time when left and right increasingly hate each other, now there's, the conditions are ready for any sort of spark on any political issue. Add to that Gen Z kids born in 1996 and later coming in, they're the ones who got social media in middle school, which is way too early. Millennials didn't get it till college. They, they weren't really harmed by it. There's no evidence that their mental health was harmed by social media. But Gen Z is a mess. And the biggest reason that we can identify seems to be social media, although we'll talk about more about that later. Anyway, my point is, my point is weird stuff begins happening on campus right right in 2014, students requesting safe spaces, trigger warnings, talking about microaggressions, saying that speech is violence. All stuff that we simply had not seen or I'd never seen, most of us had not seen before. And there's a lot of causes for it and they all come together. And that's what our book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is all
1: about. I, I'm, I'm grateful that we can talk about that because I do find it interesting. I'd also would love to speak about the righteous mind, which is uh, your book that you've you written previous to that. Because we are, and it's such a great time to talk to you, Jonathan. It's a great time for you to visit our country because we're in the, the final weeks of an election campaign here, and it's fascinating watching how people react, watching the campaign ads, which all use scary yellow font for some reason. Hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> watching though. the way the campaign ads work and how angry people are about pretty much everything, but your your book, The Righteous Mind, talks about the division of good good people people who mm-hmm. would probably like oh no I'd let you spend a day with my mum you know but how, <laughs> you know what I mean like most people are like yeah I'd let yeah. you spend a day with mum if I couldn't be there you'd be all right yeah you t- you explore why why good people are divided by politics and religion what what kind of things right now as we I think we're about tw- when when this goes to air, will be about 12 days out from the election? What kinds of things might be preventing us from assessing the situation rationally? And what should we be looking for in this time as we lead up to that kind of peak days before the election, both in the media and online and indeed within ourselves? Yeah. Well, I would urge you to think back to Charles
0: Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And you remember how you know, how scrooge is visited by three ghosts and uh, the scary one is the ghost of christmas future or the ghost of christmas is to come and so i jonathan height an american comes to you australia as the ghost of christmas future yes you are a stable democracy now you may think and you've had a great run of 40 or 50 years of uninterrupted economic growth and stability But you are an Anglosphere country just like us. In fact, you and Canada and us, we're basically like triplets separated at birth. Whatever happens to us can happen to you. Anyway, my point is um, that democracy is really unnatural and unstable. The American founding fathers knew that. Um, They thought long and hard in 1787 when they were they realized that the the original structure the articles of confederation was a disaster they needed a central government but they they had read their political history and they knew that democracy is unstable majorities oppress minorities people are ruled by passions they're easily led astray by a demagogue we don't want democracy so they gave us a republic with certain democratic elements and since then in the last 230 40 years whatever it is Um, we've kind of forgotten all their warnings. And so there's lots of other, there's like so many stories like, you know, uh, and you get this great gift, but the witch says just don't do this one thing, you know, and then we went and did the one thing. So democracy is really unstable for a tribal species such as ours. We evolved to live in small groups that are organized around tribal um, religions, uh, dancing around a campfire, worshipping rocks and trees, and really, really good at fighting other groups. That's human nature. Um, We're also good at trading with other groups. We're not bound into constant fighting. But, you know, we're kind of living way above our design constraints. And... Um, it can all go to hell very quickly, which is what we see happening in the United States. So I urge you to see each other as your opponents, not your enemies. When you look at the other side, remember that they see the world very differently than you. They have a different set of facts. They have some. They have some different morals and values, but mostly the same morals and values. Um, and remember that you can very easily follow the uh, follow in the path of the United States demonize each other, villainize each other. And before you know it, you'll be stuck in a trust spiral amplified by social
1: media from which we don't know if a country can escape. We really don't know. That polarization, though, you speak about in The Coddling of the American Mind, you, you speak that that polarization has has a bit of a cycle. Can we talk about the things that may have got us to this this kind of thing and how that cycle can work?
0: Um, yes. So, in the book and in my other work, um, you know, we, we analyze it as a polarization cycle, by which we mean, uh, so let's start with Newton's, I forget which law it is, that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Now, that's true in the realm of physics, because physics doesn't have morals. So, the opposite reaction really is equal and opposite. You know, in outer space, if I push... If I push away a block that's uh, one-tenth the weight of me, you know, that's going to go ten times faster than I will go, whatever. But in social life, we're not, it's not equal. uh, Because I'll start with one of the funniest things my daughter ever said. She came running in when she was five years old and she said, Daddy, Max hit me harder than I hit him. And, you know, um, when kids are playing the reaction is not going to be equal it's going to be bigger and before you know it each side is escalating you have a cycle and in the same way social media keeps us all well fed with outrage stories so any time you have an opportunity to behave with decency to the other side well you know given all the things they just did to us how you know why should i behave decently to them and um, the outrages of the other side justify outrages on our side, and before you know it, someone on your side is, is testing the limits, is doing something illegal or immoral, and your side is likely to defend it. So we have these unfortunate dynamics. Because we no longer live in the same world, we, we, in, in a very real sense, we live in different moral and factual worlds in the United States. And as these two worlds interact, the results now are always terrible.
1: Well, it's, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say that here as well, particularly when you look at how people are in the vast majority get their information about what's going on in the world outside of their own home. It's through their phone and it's through algorithmic news feeds that feed them more of what they've been clicking on. So they yeah. start to descend into these not only filter bubbles, but also preference bubbles where they just simply defriend and ignore things that challenge them and – so then they're living in this kind of, dare I say it, Jonathan, safe, as far as you know, uh, they're yeah. concerned, place where they're never confronted. And then suddenly yeah. either someone comes on the news and says, oh, hey, by the way, this thing is uh, scientifically proven to be really quite bad. And then all of yeah. a sudden, that's terrible. You want us to live in the Stone Age.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and- Yeah. No, that's right. And so um, that's why, you know, we'll probably come back to this again and again. But in the last six months to a year, I've come to the view that social media, uh, you know, obviously connecting people in general throughout history has generally been a good thing. um, And the internet is generally a good thing. But I think specifically, if we just focus on social media specifically, I think decades from now, we'll look back and we'll see that it uh, greatly damaged the mental health of a whole generation. It weakened democracies. And my prediction is that it'll make a few of them fail, like really fail, like lose, you know, um, and the United States could well be one of them. So, yeah, I think it's very difficult to maintain a stable democracy when you have active social media as we do now. Now, let me just be clear. In the long run, Steve Pinker is right, you know, for your listeners who have read Steve Pinker's books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, uh for all my pessimism, Steve Pinker is always pointing out that people have always been pessimistic about recent developments. Yet things always get better and better. And he's probably right now too. But for the next few years, I, I don't see how things get better. And I think some catastrophic failures are 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 quite possible, much more possible
1: than they seemed five years ago. You mentioned uh social media damaging people's mental health. And I know you you know you've got you've got young kids who are approaching their teenage years. But you talk about Gen Z, how you know you, you, that there is a, an anxiety and depression epidemic. Um, yep. You you trace this pretty much directly back to uh, social media, right?
0: Well, so let me let me be clear and let me be responsible as a social scientist here. What we know is happening is that rates of anxiety and depression and suicide and self-harm are rising in adolescents in the United States and in the UK and in Canada. So if listeners go to thecoddling.com, which is the website for the book, and then there they'll click on the solutions tab, and then there they click on better mental health, they'll see that I have two Google Docs there where I'm conducting some open source lit reviews and I'm inviting other researchers to contribute. And so the first one uh, um, collects all the published studies that I can find and that critics can find on whether this this rise is real or whether it's just shifting diagnostic criteria. Uh, in the social sciences, we really have to be careful because, you know, we've been wrong a lot um, because it's hard to get at the truth. It's much harder to get at the truth with people than it is about rocks and trees. And it's possible that the rates of depression and anxiety that are rising in all these surveys, it's possible that that's just that young people are just really comfortable talking about it now and they're more willing to admit it. And if so, then these rises would actually be a good thing. And so that's the first thing is, is it real? And the first lit review shows that because you see the exact same patterns for depression and anxiety in multiple countries and you see the same for behavior, that is suicide um, and also self-harm, um and in all cases what we see is the rise is much bigger for girls and that's true in the US the UK and Canada so i'm confident that there is a real rise. It's hitting girls much more than boys. Um, and it's happening in all the English-speaking countries. Uh, Australia and New Zealand are much smaller countries. The, your da- you just don't have as much data. And three years ago, we couldn't prove this in the United States. So it's it's only just recently that we got enough data to prove it, to, a year or two ago. So I'll be looking for that before I come. I'll be really uh, trying to scour published data. My guess is you'll see it. If it's not clear, you'll see it in the next year or two in both of the, the in New, New, New Zealand and Australia. That's the first thing, there is a real rise. The second thing, which is much harder, is what's causing it. Now here, there are probably multiple causes. In our book, uh, Greg Lukianoff and I say that um, the biggest single thing is probably the overprotection of kids that began in the 1990s. In the United States, we always let kids out in first or second grade, when they were six or seven, you know, I could walk to a friend's house, my friend and I would we'd get on a bicycle, we'd ride down to a park or to a store and buy candy. We had independence. And when you have independence, you get in fights and you have to work them out. You can't go get an adult. And you get lost, you have to find your way back or ask for help. So this happens thousands of times. And, and by the time you're 16 or 18, you're actually able to function independently and go off to college. That's the way it always was. Uh, but in the 1990s, America freaked out about child abduction. So even though we had a massive crime wave from the 60s to to the 90s, the crime wave basically ended in the mid-90s. Nobody knows why, although I think it's because we banned leaded gas 15 years earlier. But for whatever reason, crime plummets. But what matters isn't the reality, it's the perception. And our media environment started focusing on the very few cases of of children who were abducted. It hardly ever happens that a child's abducted by a stranger. Um, but, you know, it happens a few, like a hundred times a year in this country. And so we freaked out about it and we stopped letting kids out. So much so that in the early 2000s, nobody had seen a child outside unaccompanied in so long that they started reporting the parents to the police. Kids, parents started being arrested if their kids were caught playing in a park. Anyway, uh, the point is, We grossly overprotected our kids in the 90s, and that probably feeds into this. Social media is probably the other cause, um, but I can't say how much of a cause. The second lit review that I have on this page shows, uh, it it summarizes, it uh, has the abstracts of all the studies I can find showing that. Heavy use correlates with anxiety and depression. Time lag studies show that if you if you use more use at time one, you have more depression at time two, although some studies do not show that, so that evidence is not is not clear. And the third and most important kind of evidence is true experiments, where you assign people to be on social media less. And the three or four studies that I have found all show that there is an effect, although not necessarily on all variables. My point is it's complicated. It's not certain. But based on these lit reviews, I have confidence that social media is at least a partial cause. Okay, I hope I've been speaking responsibly and answered the question.
1: I, I appreciate that very much. I just want to break down a little bit of what you just talked about because I remember that moment, all right? And I think there was a, a confluence of factors. Like Facebook wasn't really a massive, massive problem until mobile broadband speeds were high enough and also that there was a smartphone device that existed in 2007 with the iPhone and then suddenly these three things came together and kaboom, all right? So- Plus the like button. It didn't have the like button every- that's true. And this is exactly very, very right. important. Having people rate each other and having kids trying to quantify, that's really yeah. damaging, I think. So- So the like button giving us those dopamine squirts uh, was was the the extra invention that then exploded this. But similarly, I just want to talk about the kids in danger, the stranger danger thing, because I remember when that suddenly came in. Jonathan, as you spoke, Mm -hmm. I 100% remember walking uh, in an Australian, actually the rest of the world, a kilometre down the road to the store with 20 Mm -hmm. cents to go and get an ice block in the summertime and then walking back. I was six, all right? Yeah, that's right. That's that's just what happened. Um, But then there was this moment where – now suddenly we have a twenty-four hour cable news channel that is desperate for content, and you know, say a kid went missing, it might have been a newspaper reporter. Cut to three years later, a kid goes missing. There's five vans with satellite dishes parked on their front lawn, broadcasting yep. live all day. And then, so suddenly, right around the country, anytime people turn the television on, oh my god, children are being abducted. Would that, yep, would you say you that that's that's kind of accurate?
0: Oh, yeah. That's exactly what happened in the United States. Yeah. Um, wait, did, are you saying that happened
1: in Australia too? I don't know. I'm, you just also kinda, had- I'm just kind of remember because we would see it as yeah. well because our news is like, well, that looks better than our news. We're talking about cattle prices are down. But goodness yeah. me, look at this. Here's a slow motion yeah. video eight of the kid running. You know, it's awful yeah, that the kid no, that, got abducted. Right. I'm not, I don't want to joke about it, but it, yeah. this no, idea that it's right. happening on every street every day.
0: Yeah. No, that's right. So, you know, humans, I mean, there's a lot of research in psychology on how we're really bad at judging risks. Uh, we're more afraid of flying than driving. You know, your listeners probably know all that sort of stuff, even though, of course, driving is much more dangerous than flying. And so when I let my kids out, I, I my wife and I made a real effort to get our kids to go out, go to the store, here, go buy some milk. Um, and when my son, we first started having my son do this when he was eight, you know, he felt very uncomfortable because he said, there are no other kids out there and everybody looks at me funny. Um, and I had to give him a special card. I made up a special card, and I said at the top, you know, free-range kid's license. And I, and I said, "He, you know, my son is my permission to be outside, and if you don't believe me, please read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and remember when you were a kid, were you allowed to go outside? And, you know, if you still don't believe me, uh, you know, please call me, and here's my number. Anyway, but even when we would send my kids out or let them go out to play in a park— You know, if they didn't come home right when they said, like, we, you know, feel this wave of panic, it is scary, until you do it five or ten times. And then you get used to it. And you realize, you know what, as a parent, you have to live with all kinds of risks. And what I'm trying to publicize is the fact that if you overprotect your kids, you're not actually keeping them safe. You're making them weak and fragile. You're making them more likely to be depressed and anxious, more likely to fail in life. So, you know, the biggest idea in the book— The the idea that we open with is anti-fragility. Kids are anti-fragile. They're not fragile. And if you treat them like they're fragile and you don't let them grow strong from experience, well, then you actually have made them fragile. So, you know, once parents understand that there's costs and benefits to everything, and if you keep your kids safe, you're imposing some really severe costs on them
1: the the concept of of antifragility uh let's let's i've heard you speak about this before in that you you compare it to the the immune system less the the people who have irrational thoughts about vaccines get on me but which <laughs> uh. i do talk about this a bit um the the immune system our human body's immune system works by exposure to pathogens learning what that pathogen is learning how to fight it and then they know how to fight it for the rest of your life that's that's the, the short version yep And you're saying that behaviorally, we need to have the same experience? Yep, exactly, that's right. So there
0: are some things that are fragile. And so if you think about your eyeballs, your eyeballs are fragile, and your kid's eyeballs are fragile. They don't get stronger by being scratched. And so you have to protect your kid's eyes. Nothing good happens from getting scratched. But the immune system is the opposite. The immune system is this amazing evolutionary adaptation for a generalist species like ours to live in multiple environments. I mean, of course, it's common to all mammals but um, and, and other animals, but it's an open system that is expecting exposure in childhood to a certain range of pathogens and even parasitic worms, all sorts of things. And it needs that exposure in order to wire itself up and develop the right set of antibodies. And if you keep your kid in a bubble and you use a lot of antibacterial wipes, you're crippling the development of the immune system and your kid is more at risk for autoimmune diseases. And so the question is, Which model is correct for your kids' more general social and psychological development? Is it like the eyeball or like the immune system? And so I would ask your listeners: If you have kids, if you have a daughter who's you know one year old, and you could you know you you have to pick you have to flip a switch one way or the other. You've got to make a choice. If you go one way. Your daughter will experience no negative social interactions until she's 18. No one will tease her. No one will exclude her. No one will insult her. She'll have smooth sailing for 18 years. And if you go the other way, she'll have the normal range, let's say even maybe a little more than the normal range of being teased and excluded and criticized. Let's stipulate, I mean, there's certain things, obviously sexual assault and rape, that's very different. That leaves lasting scars. Bullying that goes on for more than a day or two, bullying that's chronic, that leaves lasting scars. I'm not talking about that. But the sorts of short-term, unpleasant experiences that kids get over, you know, so you've got to flip, you decide which one do you want. Do you want to protect your kids from this or do you want your kids to be exposed? And if you think that your kid is like an eyeball, you're going to say, oh, no scratches, please. And if a kid is like an eyeball, you'd be right but kids aren't like eyeballs. We only learn to get as tough as we need to for the environment that we're raised in. Our brains, are uh, the human brain in particular, is very flexible in terms of, it can live in all kinds of climates. And if you raise your kid in essentially a bubble of emotional protection, and then you let your kid out to the real world where he won't be invited to everything and not everybody's gonna praise him constantly, you know, your kid's gonna find it, intolerable basically if you overprotect your kids you cripple them
1: the, the the i guess the other part of that is the parent then kind of helping the kid make sense of it all but when the kid comes home say, dad I'm," um, you know everyone played football at lunch and there was only 11 people on the side and i was 12 no one picked me yeah. then there's a then there's an opportunity for you to go and have the chat and then help the kid learn because they may not have the ability to figure out why that's right so you have to so you know look i'm a psychologist i think psychology is the most
0: important field in the world and if i had my way i would make uh you know less math mandatory and and everybody would take some psychology in high school psychology and economics those are two fields everyone should take rather than trigonometry and calculus frankly but all right you, you have to look at this both as a behaviorist, that is, kids learn from direct feedback from the environment, and so your kid has to have a lot of feedback from the environment, but also we're meaning-making creatures, and so you'd want to think more like a clinical psychologist who's helping your kid develop a story about himself and the world. And the story about the world can't be you know what? Everything is fair and just, and only you know only things will happen to you that you deserve. I mean, the story has to be. You know what? Look, sometimes things happen, and sometimes people say things they don't mean, and sometimes people don't like you. You know, so you have to help people understand. You have to help kids understand. Life's full of stuff, but you know, you're you're a good kid, and and you've dealt with this before. Remember that time that 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 kid was saying this thing to you, and how did you work it out? Yeah, you were able to turn that around. You know, whatever you you help them make sense out of it. Uh, and so that is, I think, a big part of the job of parenting. You have to expose your kid to a wide set of experiences and then also help them make sense of them.
1: Well, I can, under- I can understand how if you've never been exposed to uh, an idea or a concept that is frightening or confronting to you, suddenly when you are a, are a grown adult, but without the kind of cognitive ability to deal with those things and you get to a university and people are shouting, you're you're shouting too, you're in there. You you don't yep. want this person to speak because this frightens me. And yeah, you know, I guess one one of the things that you know I, I've I've been diagnosed with, with PTSD about about eighteen years ago. Uh, um, and uh, you know when I know I've, I've heard you speak about this and you, I heard you write about it. I've heard because I listen to your books when I'm on my bicycle. Um, oh, okay, I've heard I've heard you write about it. The yeah, idea I've been, heard
0: you write about. it. Yeah, that's I understand. That's good. I haven't heard that yeah, before. well, because
1: that's, that's my opportunity to digest books is through my ears yeah, when I'm on yeah, my, my bicycle. Because I, I have, like you, I'm quite busy. I don't have much time to actually sit down and go. I'm just reading <laughs> yeah. now. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't really do that. <laughs> yes, I'm in um, the shower and I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, but I have heard you speak about this. And I've, I've kind of been sucked into this as someone, and I've done it on this podcast, the idea of a trigger warning. And I'm, I want to be aware of triggering people. But as you mentioned, as someone with PTSD, I was like, oh, he's right. Avoiding triggers is a symptom of PTSD, and all it does is make it worse for me. It, the, yeah. the way that I got over or or continue to manage what happened to me is by constant exposure to those triggers and go, yes, this is uncomfortable, but I'm strong enough to be with it uh, through the acceptance exactly. commitment therapy stuff. And it sucks, but that's the only path out. Is there a balance, do you think, between wanting to not make people feel uncomfortable and also go, yeah, but you kind of have to feel uncomfortable if you ever want to live with it?
0: Uh, Well, it's an empirical question whether there's a balance. That is, um, suppose all we cared about at a university or in a company, suppose all we cared about was the most vulnerable students or employees. Now, obviously, we should actually care about everybody, but suppose we only cared about those with PTSD, those who had been traumatized. Well, the compassionate thing might be to try to protect them. Well, let's not You know, let's not show this movie if someone might be upset by it. Let's not read this book. Let's not use this word um, if someone will be upset by it. And that seems like the compassionate thing if you don't know much about psychology. Uh, But all the clinical psychologists that we spoke to who worked with PTSD patients told us, no, the therapy for PTSD is gradual exposure therapy to the thing that triggers. You know, it's basic Pavlovian. actually, Well, this is Pavlovian. Yeah, it's Pavlovian conditioning. That if a stimulus produces a conditioned response, a learned response, an anxiety response, then the way to get over it is by repeatedly exposing them to the conditioned stimulus without the bad thing happening. And over, you know, as Pavlov discovered when he conditioned dogs to salivate at a bell, if you ring the bell and don't give them food, they salivate a little less next time. And after you've done it 30 or 40 times without the food coming, they stop salivating. In the same way, you know, Vietnam veterans who uh, who would have a panic uh, attack at a certain smell that reminded them of their time in Vietnam or, or from the sound of helicopter blades, the way you get over it is by you expose them to the smell a little bit or to quiet sounds of helicopter blades, and then nothing happens, and then you can do it more next time. So anyway, the point is that ultimately these are empirical questions and the empirical evidence so far uh, shows that there's no benefit to trigger warnings there's some hints that they might be harmful uh, but I, it's not clear to me that they're harmful but they certainly are not beneficial and um, to basically reinforce people's idea that the world is full of triggers so here's oh here's a an meme i saw the other day we are all balloons full of feelings in a world full of pins Um, Okay, if the world feels that way to you, if that resonates with you, then, you know, um, it would be very hard to be you. And people should not validate that idea that the world is such a dangerous place that just by existing you are exposed to danger. Many people may feel that way. um, But if you want to help them, don't validate that way of thinking. That's going to basically isolate them and weaken them. But wait, please, you know what? please push back. I mean, you, I'm sure you've talked with a lot of people. Like what are the arguments you hear against that? Is there any other side to it? Do our, do people with
1: PTSD appreciate trigger warnings? Um, I, and I have heard people, you know, when I'm in their presence go, Oh, I shouldn't talk about this around you. And then they say it anyway. And then it hits me and I'm like, Oh, okay. And then the next 18 hours might be kind of uncomfortable, but, because uh, I've had to, I've had to, you know, kind of change gears a bit. Because I've realized that okay, I'm just going to live with this. I'm, I'm going to have to learn how to, 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 be with this stuff. And so I've been pursuing acceptance commitment therapy. And yeah, great. Um, it's, I'm not gonna lie, it sucks. Yet, it is easier every day. It's a strange, it's a really strange thing, Jonathan. It's straight out of Psych 101, the behaviorism section.
0: It's easier every day. That's called extinction. The extinction of a conditioned response.
1: Yeah, but it still sucks because you have to go through it. Um, But it's it's quite finely granular in how less it sucks Mm. (laughs) every time. So it's still shit, but it's just a little bit less shit. And I'm a little more able to get on with things, and things are a little bit more normal maybe four hours later, less than five hours later. Okay. Another way to look at it
0: is you know uh, take a narrative view of your life and look back at your life you know from when you're 70 and, and how would you want to live your life do you want people to have treated you always as though you're damaged and you know what i'm so glad that everybody accommodated me and everybody understood that i'm special and i have this special weakness and you know for my whole life people tried hard to not make me think about this thing or not react with this memory? Or do you want to look back at your life and say, you know what, this terrible thing happened to me. It was completely unfair. It was horrible. It was exploitative. Whatever it was, this horrible thing happened to me. Uh, and that's one of the biggest facts in the story of my life. But the rest of the story of my life is a, a story of overcoming and You know, within a couple of years, I was back to being a normal person. I wasn't anything special. And, you know, so I would ask people to consider
1: which story do they want to be true of their life. I've I've got 25 years till I'm 70. And I
3: would say, (laughs) I would
1: would say the second version, to be honest, but I guess what we're talking about comes under the blanket of of something that I've heard you talk about called safetyism. What other things kind of make up safetyism, Jonathan?
0: Yeah, so safety is obviously a good thing. And especially when you're a parent, wow, does safety become a good thing? Um, you know, it's funny, one of the one of the contributing causes to the madness on campus is simply that we used to have a lot of kids, people used to have a lot of kids. And now most people have zero or one or sometimes two kids, they're just not that many kids around. But when you only have one kid, or you know, you really uh, are protective, because my God, you're, you know, your kid could be hit by a car. So of course, physical safety is important. But Um, When something becomes a preeminent value, it knocks out lots of other things. Aristotle said, any virtue carried to extremes becomes a vice. So safety is important. But if I was to say safety uber alles, safety over everything— Let's worship safety. You know what? There's some policy. The school is thinking of having a field trip, but what if someone gets hurt? We better not have that field trip. Oh, what was it? So Lenore is this wonderful woman who wrote a book, Free Range Kids, she and I worked together. We started a, an organization called letgrow.org. And I think she sent around the other day a parent complaining that field trips are now so difficult in the United States. Uh, one school they wanted to go to the postal service, the post office, across the street from the school. They wanted to take the kids across the street to see the postal system at work. And you know, some of the administrators, you know, the forms they had to sign, and they, and the, the objection. Well, what if they get hit by a package? Like. Yeah, I suppose you can imagine kids going to a post office. You can imagine a package falling off a shelf and hitting a kid on the head. The mere fact that you can imagine that, does that mean we therefore shouldn't go? Well, yes, it does. That's safetyism. Um, it's it's an irrational, extreme worship of safety to the point where it knocks out all the other things that kids need. Kids actually need, well, they need a lot of experience, but they actually need risk. They actually need to learn you know, how to, I mean, a lot of kids nowadays don't know how to light a candle because we keep them away from fire and matches until I don't know what age. You can see videos online of kids freaking out at roasting marshmallows because they have no experience with
1: fire. And when the marshmallow catches on fire, daddy, daddy, what do I do? I don't think it's just kids though, Jonathan, the safety is my idea. And you've been to Australia when you get here. Well, I certainly noticed this when I came back after living in America for, for 10 years, as a country, there is this idea that the state does kind of impose a lot of this stuff upon us. And I, I noticed this particularly, even more so, I was in in Bali, which is uh, part of Indonesia, north of here, about 10 hours in a plane. And I was at a bar with my wife where there was a giant kind of 70s tan and Z-Bo- Z-Boys kind of skate bowl inside the bar with people skateboarding in it, skateboards wow. flying everywhere in the uh, In the corner of the bar, there was a couch where you could sit down and get a tattoo at the bar. Wow. Wow. You know, and uh, probably no responsible service of alcohol laws, just like, oh, you want a beer? I'll sell you a beer. You want a vodka? I'll sell you a vodka. You know, I probably won't ask how many you've had or, you know, how old you are. Now, I sat in there and I went, here's an issue. Like, you could go to this bar and have a really, really powerful lesson in uh, personal responsibility because you can wake up the next morning, you know, and you've got yourself, yeah. a, I don't know, like a, a Michael Bolton tattooed across your neck. And,
0: and you, right. And you've got AIDS from the tattoo.
1: A, perhaps, or hepatitis. They did, they did, you've got the you've yeah, yeah. skateboard in the head and you're like, well, yeah. I went and I did yeah. this and I've learned a lesson who's to blame me. Whereas in this country, there's no way. You could ever even consider opening something like that. But it made me think, Jonathan, what are we missing out on as a country by not allowing an entire society to experience what risk is and experience the consequences of risk? And what ideas are we missing out on? What innovation are we missing out on? That, that's right. Those are all good avenues to explore.
0: Um, in the book, we cover the idea that kids need risk. And this is one of the coolest – one of the, the most fun chapter to write uh, was chapter, uh, chapter 9 on free play. And this wonderful psychologist, Peter Gray, makes the observation that kids seek out the right level of risk for themselves. And so if you look at kids who are playing with something, you know, when kids learn to skateboard – what do they do? They don't just skateboard down, up and down the hill and down the hill over and over again. They make it more dangerous, and they start skateboarding downstairs once they're, once they're able to. Um, kids are seeking out risk just like they seek out food, they seek out attachment. Kids are programmed to seek out the kinds of experience that they need, and it's pretty clear kids like other mammals— need to master the kinds of risks that they're gonna face as adults, and so especially about the physical world. They wanna climb things, they wanna, look, what are the most popular games? Um, tag and hide and seek, which are good games to play, especially for species like ours where we're, we're both hunters and and prey. And so our kids are practicing for both roles. So I think it's the case that our kids now have risk deprivation syndrome. Um, it's good that we protect them from death. So, you know, the, the, the improvement in consumer products is such that very few kids die from consumer products. That's great. That's safety. I'm all in favor of safety. Um, but it's the small risks that are the really valuable. Valuable ones, and those are the ones that kids need to expose themselves to. Um, the you know the kind of bar that you're talking about there, if that was common all around the country, yeah, a lot of people get hurt, and a few would get killed. So I do understand why we you know why more developed nations where we uh, we have more lawyers and we, we expect to not get injured. You know I understand why those go away, but the presence of lawyers makes it difficult to have reasonable policies. I and mean, I think we have a lot more lawyers than, than you do. Oh, there was a. You know what? Hey, here's an idea. I want to try it with you. I've not, I haven't said this in public, but it's an idea I've been working on. Okay, so what I had a similar experience to. Well, no, I had this so when I was in Brazil, I did my dissertation in Brazil, and so I was in Brazil in 1989, and I remember um, I was you know in various Brazilian cities, and like you'd be walking down the sidewalk, and there'd be just like a big pit in the sidewalk, like a place where it was broken, and if you weren't watching, you'd fall in and break your leg, and stuff like that. You know, it just it just there wasn't it was dangerous. Um, and, and I for the first time, I appreciated having lawyers like, wow, you know, in America, if that happened, like somebody would be sued so fast that the pothole would get fixed. And so, you know, a world where, where you can just be, you know, killed for no fault of your own or injured, that's bad. And I'm glad that we don't have that. But here's the bizarre thing that's happening now. Now, with social media, it is the case that you can be going about your life and you say one thing one joke, one bad tweet, especially it's really serious for kids. Kids say lots of stupid things and their life can be over. So, um, you know, a kid who says, you know, tells one joke, if it has a racist word in it, and that video goes viral and the kid's 11, you know, that kid could be in trouble for the rest of his life because these things live on forever. So if you become the subject of a social media scandal, in a way, it's kind of like you're walking down the street and you fall into a hole. We, As we've solved more and more physical risks in developed countries, um, ironically and sadly, we've exposed ourselves to an unregulated social world in which we all have to walk on eggshells. We're walking in minefields because we really could you know, blow a leg off at any moment.
1: I I absolutely agree with you. And this has led to two things. And I I guess what you're talking about is this kind of dangerous social world that that you're speaking of and you write about and you kind of distill it into these extraordinary untruths, these three great Uh untruths that a generation and and in many ways and then kind of osmosis through social media and through the reading of social media, people my age start to to get into these ideas as well, this idea that um, what does not kill you makes you weaker. That's the first one. The second one is that your emotions are, are real that that that's evidence of fact basically well wait wait the second one is always trust your feelings sorry so emotions tru- are real oh yeah sorry. emotions are real but uh, always trust inform- your feelings i guess what i was trying to say is that your emotions are telling you a fact yeah that's right yeah okay. that's, sorry that's, yeah. that's why it's early <laughs> so the second one would be your emotions are telling you a fact always trust your feelings and and the third one is it's a war it's us versus them <laughs> yes that's right and yeah. these things don't really reflect how communities or societies developed, yet we've been sucked into them, and now they're the new kind of rule book that we play by.
0: That's right. So uh, in trying to understand this new moral culture that emerged on American campuses around 2014, 2015, not everywhere, but certainly at the, at the elite liberal arts colleges in particular, uh, as Greg Lukianoff and I were, were trying to analyze this – Greg first noticed these pathological ways of thinking. They were, in fact, the very ways of thinking that he had learned to not do when he was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Greg is prone to depression. He had a suicidal depression, which we talk about in in, uh, Chapter 7 of the book. In 2007, uh, he he almost committed suicide, and then he um, committed himself to a hospital and learned CBT and learned uh, about cognitive distortions like catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, discounting the positive, mind reading, all all these things that depressed and anxious people do a lot. I mean, all of us do them sometimes, but... If your mind does them frequently, you think yourself into a depression. And with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, you learn to think your way out. And so, um, what Greg began to notice is that students were saying things like, "Well, you know, if this speaker who has right-wing views is allowed to speak on our campus, this will be violence against certain constituencies on campus. They will be traumatized. Therefore, you know, so this is it's it's mind reading. It's catastrophizing." And so a lot of the book is about how bad ideas that are forwarded or or pushed or taught with some positive intention, with an intention to help people, can end up hurting the very people you want to help. We've already talked about the the anti-fragility idea. So what doesn't kill you makes you weaker is a common idea, because if people think that children or or college students are like eyeballs, that we have to protect them from being scratched, well, then you'll think that way. But that's wrong. That's backwards. The second one, always trust your feelings, is also wrong, uh, because especially in a place like a university, where we are deliberately trying to expose kids to diversity, we're trying to uh, to challenge them and make them think in different ways. And if that is sometimes upsetting, it's always upsetting to have your cherished constructs challenged. If, if that feeling of upset, of, of a discomfort, is taken to be a sign that you are being attacked, and therefore you need protection— well, this, first of all, wreaks havoc on the university because now you're banning ideas based on someone's feelings. And secondly, uh, because you're protecting yourself from being challenged. So the second one ends up being the opposite of critical thinking. We want our students to learn critical thinking, but instead we're teaching them, don't change any ideas if it feels uncomfortable for you to change. The third one is the most serious of all. And we haven't really talked about it yet. It's, as you say, it's, the, you know, it's us versus them. It's a war. Um, we evolved for that we're really good at doing us versus them we're really good we evolve for in small groups that often uh, clash violently this is the way traditional societies tribal societies are but real tribes also are very good at trade and exchange they can they can sort of come together to fight or they can loosen up and trade and exchange And um, as we create modern diverse secular societies, it's kind of miraculous that we can all live together, people who speak different languages, have different religions. But man, is it easy to turn us against each other, you know, as we saw in in Yugoslavia, as we saw in Rwanda, um, as we've seen in World War II, and as we're seeing on campus now. The more we teach young people to identify, with their groups and to judge groups based on their level of privilege and power, the more we're activating these ancient tribal circuits for us versus them. Um, The 20th century, I think, was a, a century with extraordinary atrocities, but an overall trajectory towards justice, towards treating people as individuals, towards expanding rights for all. And the 21st century, unfortunately, is turning into a giant reversal and rejection of the most important moral lessons learned in the 20th century. We're now teaching young people to not treat people as individuals, treat them as members of group and judge them accordingly, good or bad. we're teaching them that intent doesn't matter. All that matters is impact on you or on on members of certain groups. There was also this thing called due process, a rather miraculous invention in in civilized societies. That you know, if someone says something that the group doesn't like, the group doesn't get to just round them up and kill them. And so there used to be due process, but now if you're accused, you're convicted, and it's uh, you know, while physical violence remains low. But, you know, shame is as painful as being punched. Shame is 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 soul-destroying and certainly career-destroying. So in a lot of ways, I think the last five or ten years have been a time of extraordinary reverse moral progress
1: in Western societies. The us versus them thing is the one that, for me, as you mentioned, it, it is. It, for me it's the most troubling, particularly as we're in the final days of this election cycle, because while there is great benefit for... The I'm going to use the puppet master fingers uh, keeping people divided (laughs) divide and conquer is is, oh that's what that is I was wondering what that was that that sort of weird hand motion around your face but thank you for explaining that no I'm using my I'm using my marionette hands I'm doing the being John Malkovich hands (laughs) ah very good it does serve people at the very 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 top of the political and the powerful pyramid to have people so distraught that they can't organize back against them but what it does do, and I see this in, you know, particularly I, I'm probably, I'm, I'm a centrist who kind of maybe lists a bit to the left, maybe, uh, you know, because I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, but I, a lot of people think I'm super left because I, I'm, I don't eat meat, um, you know, would call myself vegan, but recently vegans have been kicking uh-huh. in doors of farms, and I'm not into that, um, you know, but people accuse me of being lefty because I, you know, I, I think renewable energy is a good idea. Um, but uh-huh. I, I, hate, I hate to break it to you, but climate change is going to hurt you. If you don't like immigration, it doesn't give a shit,
4: <laughs> yeah. you
1: know, yeah. um, it's not a left or right issue. It's an everyone issue, but yeah, it seems to be that, uh, particularly on the, on the left spectrum where I, I kind of have observed recently, there's this extraordinary fracturing along the way because Suddenly, it starts to be a race to purity and people call out each other along the way. Well, you're not as this and you're not as that. When did we start calling each other out? When did we start point scoring by going, my God, you said a bad thing. Therefore, everything you say is awful and everyone that ever talked to you is awful.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I think to really get at the heart of this, why we're all going crazy, let's try a few metaphors. So one is suppose you you know, suppose you ran you you ran a chemical plant and you you had everything very carefully titrated and and everything was working fine, and then one day the air in your plant was entirely replaced by pure oxygen. And, you know, things would blow up. I mean it was just the whole like all the chemical reactions that were finely tuned would just complete, like actual explosions and flames would happen. Or another metaphor I like to use is, you know, think about the, the all the, the motions of the stars and the galaxies and, and everything uh, is moving uh, according to, you know, Newtonian or whatever kind of physics you, you want to apply. Um, let's say, or Einsteinian, whatever you want to apply. And, uh, and then suddenly, God were to reach in or or some you know metaphorical uh, uh, God type creature were to reach in and change the gravitational constant by one hundred percent, just double the you know whatever the, the gravitational constant in all the equations, double it. instantly, like everything would you know everything would change. The universe would start contracting. It would be complete chaos. And in the same way, imagine, That people have networks of communication, and we talk to each other, and we gossip about each other. We do all sorts of things, Um, and then someone just reaches in and increases the coefficient of of connectivity by 100 percent or 500 percent, and you know that's basically what Mark Zuckerberg did in inventing social media. Um, And it would seem you know things can kind of go crazy, but it's actually worse than that because it's not the connectivity that is so bad. It's not the fact that, look, you and I, look, I mean, you're on the other side of the goddamn planet. Uh, You you know, you're, and we're talking as though we're in the same room. That's wonderful, okay? You know, Skype or Zoom, whatever, this is wonderful. This is is connectivity, this is not a bad thing. What's bad is creating ways that people talk to each other not to communicate, but to use each other as punching bags to gain credit with others. So it's what I would call the public-private ratio of communication. Anything that increases our ability to communicate as person-to-person is generally going to be good, although not always. Anything that increases the, the degree to which we're just showing off for others, and we can gain points by being savage to each other, that's bad. Uh, and that's what social media has done. And we see this especially in among, among teenagers for whom this is all new, and it's hard enough to be a teenager, and especially a teenage girl. You know, boys aggression is physical. They bully each other physically. So when they all got phones, they just played video games and they stopped bullying each other physically as so they went down. Whereas girls' aggression, they're just as aggressive as boys, but their aggression is relational. Um, they damage each other's relationships. And when they all got social media, they now have constant and infinite opportunities to damage each other's relationships anonymously, indirectly, with plausible deniability. So yeah, I think that the fun- some of the fundamental parameters of social life have been radically altered in the last 10 years, and things are chaotic, our democracies are chaotic, our teenagers are depressed and anxious, our, our companies are going haywire over small things that escalate into big things. Uh, and this isn't to say that there are not real concerns. A lot of these concerns are over race and gender issues, and, and I'm not denying that they're real concerns that might have been overlooked before. So there are good things that happen. But I don't think we're able to live this way. I don't think we're able to live in constant fear of each other, in constant fear of being called out, being shamed. It's, it, it, we can't be open. We can't be trusting. We can't be creative when we're all living in a minefield.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
1: band together around a common enemy, but then all of a sudden you turn around, and you'll find something to make that person your enemy as well. And then suddenly your tribe gets smaller. And then your tribe gets smaller. Yeah. And then your tribe gets smaller. That's right.
0: Yeah. So so the the classic Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother and cousin against the stranger. We're very good at coming together at whatever level of conflict is needed. And so Um, at election time, you know, the the right might rally against the left or the left might rally against the right. But there is an interesting asymmetry that I found in, in my own research on moral judgment, which is that the right tends to value group loyalty and authority more than does the left. The left tends to value compassion and equality more than does the right. And what this means is that whenever there are political disputes, the left tends to be more subject to faction than does the right. The right is more likely to pull together against a common enemy, whereas the left is more likely to fight within itself. So anyone who's seen the classic Monty Python skit from A Life of Brian, you know, about, oh, no, we're the Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Judean people's front. No, we're the people's front of Judea. Yeah. So, you know, that wouldn't happen on the right. And so this is, uh, you know, what, one of the problems that the left has in organizing against the
1: right. Mate, it's, mate in our country, we've had that many prime ministers in that many years, and, and the left was just kicking people out left and right, and, and the, the right was kicking. It's just, it's an absolute schmuzzle. As people, uh, we want to be associated with a tribe, and, and we want to feel safe that we are among people that feel the same way about us. And you mentioned that, you know, some people feel Stronger about kindness, other people feel stronger. It's like I oh, know I feel more powerful when I'm with this powerful man who's powerfully uh-huh. saying, "No, our country uh-huh. needs to be safe." Like I feel my country uh-huh. needs to be safe too, but I have issues of how we keep it safe. You know, I'm not. Uh-huh. It's it's not like a one or the other. I don't want every border to fly open, and I don't want everyone to suddenly come in. It's like, oh, that's not. Hey, what I wow,
0: want. You, you sound like a centrist. I like it. <laughs> Nuance—that's my word for 2019. Nuance. We have to. Let's be able talk to about your word for 2019.
1: Events. Tell me about nuance, Jonathan. What does nuance in the world of of democracy, of left and right politics look like? So what nuance looks like is
0: the recognition that we are tribal creatures who are constantly at each other's throats. And when we look ahead to the future, we see more of the same. And some of us say, enough. I don't want to play this game. And so – um, we recognize that. Uh, oh, I've got a great quote from John Stuart Mill around here somewhere. But he says, you know, in every one of the long standing disputes, uh, it is generally the case that each side was correct in what they asserted, but wrong in what they denied. And if they would but, you know, take certain ideas from the other side, little would be left to complete their view of the subject, something like that. The point of it is that. Um, In a time of polarization, when there's a lot of hatred, you can pretty much guarantee that each side has a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. And so nuance means whenever you're in any dispute, you look for where the other side has something to say, something that they're right about, or where your side has been wrong. And then you start by saying that, and it has a magical effect on people. It, it, It announces, you know what? I'm not what you expected. I'm not just you know, a lawyer or a partisan, or I'm not just going to try to beat you. I'm actually here to talk with you, and I'm going to acknowledge that you have some good things to say, or that you're right about, or at least that you're motivated, even if I think you're wrong on every point, to at least acknowledge that I think you're sincere in your motives. Even that's a concession. And so a, a nice thing happened when Twitter doubled its size from whatever, 120 to 240 characters. I discovered that it's actually possible in 240 characters to say sometimes, I agree with you on X, but on Y, I think it's this. And that has an amazing effect on people. It sort of cuts off the flame wars. So that's the word for 2019, nuance. Not just <laughs> but- because it's the right thing to do, but because it will actually make you more effective at getting what you want. <laughs>
1: um Right now in Australia, we're getting, we're getting bombarded with ads on television, on Facebook, there's billboards, there's things on the back of buses telling us that Australia will crumble into the Stone Age if you vote for and then insert one person or the other. Their tactics yeah. are exactly the same, Jonathan. How can we kind of insulate ourselves or at least observe all this messaging and then the people who are amplifying that through whatever their social media or, or, or newspaper journalism, how can we even just kind of look at, well, what is it that I really want? How can we make a decision that is not influenced by the emotional triggers being slammed upon us by this kind of messaging?
0: Yeah. Well, it's hard to do that in the heat of an election, but I think it's important to for every, in every democracy to keep your eye on structural reforms that either amplify the extremes or, or, or create room for moderation. That's one thing. And then uh, the other is to educate children for democracy. Because as I said, I I think democracy is in trouble. I think a number of, of democracies are going to fail in the next 10 or 15 years, and my own country could be among them. I, you know, I'm not saying it will fail, I'm just saying it is conceivable where 10 years ago was not conceivable. And so one example of a structural reform, the fact that you have mandatory voting in Australia means that your your extremes don't control things, whereas in the United States, the worst part of our political system – well, there are many, but the two worst are – uh, one that most of our state, most of our legislators are chosen in closed party primaries, which means that only about five percent of the people will go to the polls on that day. The you know the five percent, or maybe it's ten percent, it's five percent of the, the the Democrats that are most passionate, and the five percent of the Republicans. Oh yeah, that would only be five percent of the country. Anyway, they pick the candidates who run, and so that great that means that all legislators, they're mostly not afraid of losing the election. They're afraid of losing the party primary, which means they have to be more extreme. That's a big structural problem. And the people who vote tends to be more extreme. You now, in America, we could never mandate voting. Um, it, just, it just, There's just no way. Our culture is a little different from yours. We couldn't do that. But that's a, it, that's a good thing that you have. I think your country is more moderate than mine for a variety of reasons. Education, you want to – there are a lot of motives you can appeal to. People don't want to be suckers. That's a very strong motivation. And so part of educating for democracy, I think, could be, first of all, teaching about the long traditions of, of left and right and free market and socialist and everything. Teach that society is complicated and there are lots of, lots of sincere people who, who've had insights into how to have a good society. And then teach about electoral politics and how it plays on the emotions. And only a sucker would, you know, would, be, would, would fall for all of it. You have to really expose yourself to multiple sides and then make a choice yourself. So encouraging viewpoint diversity, this will be one of my themes when I come to Australia. Um, I co-founded an organization called Heterodox Academy. If you go to heterodoxacademy.org, I don't run it anymore, but it's run by a wonderful uh, professor, a woman named Deborah Mashick. But we're working to uh, help universities expose students to a variety of viewpoints. We worship diversity in many forms, but we're sometimes afraid of it in, in its political forms or in just the, the kind of diversity that is most helpful is people looking at something from different perspectives. So that's what we're working on at Heterodox Academy. So I think you have to look institution by institution. Keep your elementary schools, keep your your, your primary and secondary schools Uh, As places that are preparing students for democracy, not trying to indoctrinate them. Keep your political institutions um, strong so that the game is good. Like uh, imagine a, a soccer or football game in which the refs were corrupt, and it was okay to for players to uh, you know cut each other's Achilles tendons with a with a hedge clipper. I mean that would not be a good game. Um, sorry, I see you freaking out. Of that sorry, I just I don't know where I got that image from. It just came to me.
1: Well, I get um, I get I get why you did it because that's what some people play. Someone might come in to go. Oh, I would like, as we just mentioned, I would like to have a conversation about immigration that's the game i want to play and then someone comes in with their hedge clippers and yeah. suddenly like yeah. oh so now i'm pl- racist, now i'm playing yeah. the chopping off yeah. of the ankles game this is not
0: the game yeah. i came for Exactly, exactly. That's what's happening in American politics, the politics of personal destruction. Uh, And it's going to keep a lot of good people out of public life. Anyway, so yeah, our democracies are at risk, and it's going to take a society-wide effort um, at both structural reforms to basically, just as we're adapting to climate change, we're going to have to start adapting and pouring a lot of concrete. I think we're going to have to start adapting our political institutions and all of our um, social institutions, to rising polarization
1: and the short-trigger, high-outrage world of social media. Jonathan, you live in a world of being at the forefront of short-trigger, high-outrage. Not only are you a very public-facing person saying challenging things like, I don't know, expose yourself to different ideas politically, and but also... <laughs> lecturing at, at a university where I'm, I'm aware that professors, like people like you who do, who lecture, there's a, a sign in the bathroom saying, did your professor say something that freaked you out? Here's a text message where you can report them. Like that's going to that's gonna be a difficult day to go to work anyway. You also got kids that, you know, are coming into their teenage years. You live in Greenwich Village. There's, there's a lot of things that would stress you out, man. So mm-hmm. I, I'd just love to know what do you do in, in your life to keep yourself Okay, what does what self, what self-care yeah. look like for Jonathan Haidt?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, first, there was a time soon after Trump was elected when it was clear that a lot of people were losing their minds. Now... Uh, Donald Trump is an atrocious president. He tramples on almost all the values that I hold dear. I don't want to say anything to defend him. Um, But there was a period where I was actually afraid uh, for myself, and I thought that my career could easily end. I could say something that would get me crucified. Uh, I should start making contingency plans to leave the academy. I should start making contingency plans in case I have to leave the country. Uh, In 2017, when we started having actual violence on campus in those first months after Trump was elected, that's the way I felt. Now, the madness has eased up a bit. There has thankfully been very little violence since that semester on campus. So it looked as though we really were going to lose our minds all over the place. And there's been a bit more sanity since then. One thing I've come to realize is that most people are sane and decent, but they're afraid to stand up to the few people who are really the intimidators, who are using social media and public platforms to intimidate others into submission. Um, and what I found is that the great we're, we're in a giant game of the emperor's new clothes, and most people are reasonable. So as long as I'm, I'm moderate, I'm reasonable, I'm not actually very provocative, I try to speak with nuance. Uh, as I've done here with you today. And I found that if you do that, most people will respond well. And when I am criticized on social media, often there will be people who will stand up for me, uh, who will say, no, what you said about height is not right. He's not like that. And so I'm not, you know, if it looked like, uh, you know, this was invasion of the body snatchers and you and me and three other people were the only real human beings left. Yeah, I would be pretty despairing, but it's not like that. What we have is not, The problem of humanity we have is a problem of the dynamics in which some people now have so much power to intimidate others that it's kind of a mess. So, just realizing that that most people are decent, that makes me a lot less afraid. secondly, i'm in I'm in the unnatural position of having extraordinary job security. Um, I can do this because I have tenure at a major American university. Hardly anyone in the United States has as much job security as I do. And uh, so you know, adjunct professors, untenured professors, high school teachers, well, oh, sorry, high school teachers, In public schools, they have as much job security as I do. But most American workers, and I imagine most Australian workers, are much more vulnerable. And let's see, what else? Um, I live in Greenwich Village, New York City, which is great fun and extremely safe physically. So I'm in no real danger physically. I just have to always be very careful about what I say. That's all.
1: Do you try to get eight hours sleep? Do you go to the gym? Do you eat right?
0: Every morning, I read... Uh, so this is something I began in 2017 when I when I was really quite anxious. Not, not quite anxiety disorder level anxious, but I was really getting anxious, uh, especially in the summer when it looked like there could be a nuclear war with North Korea, and I live in Manhattan, which would be a target. Um, and I started stocking up on freeze-dried food and things like that because— you know, I don't expect a nuclear bomb to hit, but I do expect the power grid to come down for months at a time. And, you know, in New York City, there could be cannibalism if that happens. So I wanted to have freeze-dried food instead of of people. What I started then is reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, uh, which is the wisest of all the books I've read. I, I, I read a lot of ancient wisdom to write my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, and Marcus Aurelius and Buddha's Dhammapada – uh, and and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Those are three of the richest sources of psychological insight ever written. And I found that reading Marcus Aurelius really helped me keep things in perspective and and just commit to doing the right thing. He, he talks about the importance of speaking honestly and, and with integrity and just whatever the consequences, just commit to honesty and integrity. And people will be ungrateful. People will treat you badly, but don't get mad at them. This is just... You know the way people are, that really spoke to me as a social psychologist who studies morality. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's great social psychology. So, reading Marcus Aurelius, I found it important to work on my on my relationships to keep my marriage strong. I you know, to to um, really work on that. It's incredibly valuable and grounding. I have a wonderful wife, and making sure that my basic relationships are are strong. I try to exercise a little, but I don't have much time. So I mostly just take the stairs. And in Manhattan, if you take the stairs all the time, that's a lot of exercise. I have a temperament sort of in the middle. I'm not born to great optimism or pessimism. But mostly I think I can say that I I do have a great sense of purpose. That is, I feel like I've I've taken on a, a, a struggle and a challenge that is perfectly suited to who I am and what I study And that's very gratifying that I get to use all that I've learned, all that I've trained for, for my whole career. You know, I've been in the academy for 30 years. Uh, I started graduate school in 1987. And the fact that I get to use all of that to address what I think is one of the most important challenges that we face is really gratifying. So even though I don't have much fun, I don't have much time, I'm actually pretty satisfied with, with my life, I guess I could say.
1: Jonathan, I'm so grateful that you're going to come down to Australia and uh, amplify this message of, I don't know, shall we say nuanced conversation and diversity and thought. (laughs) And, you know, there might be a little more to it. Wait before you click the outrage button. It's an extraordinary time that you'll be visiting us. Uh, Things will be at a fever pitch uh, as we as we lean into this very, very important election. I'm stoked that you're coming down. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm so excited. I've,
0: I've actually never been to Australia, but I've never met an American who returned and said a single bad thing about the country. I'm really looking forward. I'll be giving a public lecture, uh, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. I hope people will come out for it. They can learn more about my topics by going to thecoddling.com or righteousmind.com. Um, and uh, I hope. Wait, where are you based? Which city? Howard, Sydney. Okay, I, I hope I see you uh,
1: when when I come to town. Mate, I, I I've done some work with Susie before. She's fantastic. I, I've I've done a run of tours with them as a moderating one of their one of their guests. And, oh great, um, yeah, yeah, they they're great great people to work with. They run a great tour. They've got a great uh, user base. There'll be great audiences. You'll have good conversations. Um, yeah, man, you'll dig it. Okay, well, thanks for giving me this chance to speak mate. to Australians. It's a pleasure talking with you. <laughs> thanks for answering an email to your random university website from me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. You're the best, Jonathan. Have a great day, mate. Uh, cheers. You too. That was Jonathan Haidt. He's touring Australia in July. You can get tickets to his talks at thinkinc.org.org, T-H-I-N-K. I N C you can also find him on Twitter at J O N H A I D T John height on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Please do get in touch. If you need anything through the week, uh, send us your email at gmail.com and please do leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It does help the show enormously. If you want to help the show, if this show has offered you any value in any way, leaving a rating or review there would be the very best way that you can help us all out here at the show. This uh, episode today was made by my producer, Rachel Barrett, without whom which nothing in my life happens my audio producer andy ma music of course by mike mills also known as toe Hider, your one-stop shop for power metal and music composition that's not his byline i just put it there and Ingve malmstein memes which he sent me a great one this week you'll need to google who that is don't google it duck duck, duck go duck duck go that's it <laughs> i'll check back in with you on friday until we speak next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things